Ryan Broyles is in his late 20s. Uh, he's married to Mary Beth. They've got a newborn son. They live in about $60,000 a year, just bought their first house down in Texas, a very modest middle-class family. Uh, But what's so unusual about their frugal way of living is that Ryan is just finishing up a three-year, multi-million dollar contract as a wide receiver for the Detroit Lions. And so his, his frugality has been a topic of conversation. In fact, uh, several months ago, it was the hot topic on sports uh, talk shows. ESPN asked him, so why the frugality? And he said, well, there's a, there's a negative reason and a positive reason. Negatively, I've seen what money does to NFL players. I've seen the financial woes. You know, one out of six pro football players files for bankruptcy within a few short years of retirement. So he didn't want that happening to him. Positively, Ryan said, uh, something happened to me several years ago that changed my life. And he told the story. He was a a student at Oklahoma where he was playing football. He came to Oklahoma. His his life was a mess. His freshman year, he almost lost his eligibility because he was arrested for stealing gas. But then between junior and senior years during that summer, he went on a trip to Haiti He went on a trip to Haiti and he met Christ followers whose lives were filled with joy. And that just rocked him, that these people who were dirt poor were so joy-filled. And it led to him surrendering his life to Christ. Uh, Ryan became a Christ follower. And his coach at Oklahoma says the change in his life was like from night to day. You know, he started memorizing huge chunks of the Bible and, and, and then he became disciplined in every area of his life from football to money management. He became so disciplined at, at money management that today he, he and Mary Beth have a charitable foundation giveaway, uh, just huge chunks of money to desperately needy people every year. And it's also, his money management has also enabled him to weather the storm of recently losing his job. He was cut by the Lions at the beginning of the season. So we're, we're in the second week of a six-part series called Back to Plan A. God's countercultural wisdom. Back to plan A. Each week, we're looking at an important contemporary issue where our culture has been drifting further and further and further away from biblical values, further and further away from God's plan A. And in each case, that's been a disaster. So the goal of this series is, is to call us back to plan A in each of these important areas and to encourage those of us who are Christ followers, to to promote, to be advocates of God's plan A in our culture. Why? So that we can win the culture wars? No. As I said last week when we introduced the series, our goal is not to win culture wars. Our goal is to love people in Jesus' name. Our goal is to show them God's plan A because God's plan A is in their best interests. So so the topic today is materialism. We're going to be talking about money and what we do with our money. Materialism is the the default position of of our culture, but it's not God's plan A. We've already gotten a glimpse of God's plan A in the lives of Ryan and Mary Beth Broyles. Now we're going to look and see what God's word has to say about money. So if you brought a Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Timothy Chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, it's going to take you a little bit of time to find it. It's a shorter book toward the end of your, your Bible. And again, I hope you bring a Bible with you. If you're using an electronic Bible, just a, a quick word on that. 
Uh, and that is, it's difficult to mark it up if you've got that uh, free version app, but if you will download an NIV study Bible, it allows you to mark up your Bible as you follow along on weekends. So, uh, while you're looking for First Timothy, let me give you a definition for materialism. This is my definition, okay? This is the Oxford Nicodeme Dictionary. So, uh, if you look it up, materialism in an online dictionary, you'll find something that's somewhat similar. So here's my definition. Materialism is the constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy. It's the constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy. Now, when I say things, I'm talking about cars, electronics, clothes, sports equipment, pets, furniture, uh, you name it. When I say experiences, I'm talking about cruises, eating out at restaurants, rounds of golf, season tickets, massages and manicures, travel, you get the idea. The constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy. Have you found 1 Corinthians 6? Let me read to you a couple of verses. We're going to begin at verses 9 and 10. And as we read, this is where you get to mark up your Bible, okay? I'm going to note uh, four words. I want you to circle or underline or put a star next to. Verse 9 of 1 Timothy 6. Those who want, that's the first word, circle it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires. It's the second word I want you to note. That plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, circle love, is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager circle eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, now let me just review the four words you, you circled or underlined. Want, desires, love, eager. And Paul's talking, Apostle Paul's talking about money here. He's talking about the constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy. Okay, this is what our culture is into. Uh, George Carlin, famous comedian, used to do a routine on stuff. He said, that, that's what the country is all about. It's about collecting more and more stuff. And you keep putting it into the, the thing you call a house. And a house is nothing but a pile of stuff with a cover over it, he said. And when you fill up your house, what do you do? You go out and you buy a bigger house, right? Yes. We're into stuff. So what is God's plan A? By way of contrast, let me give you God's plan A today in the form of five antidotes. Okay, if you're going to push back against the culture, if you're going to walk upstream in a downstream materialistic world, here are five antidotes to beware of. Number one, relationships. If you haven't taken your outline out yet, take it out. Fill it out as we go. Relationships. Not things and experiences, but relationships. And the primary relationship, of course, that will cure us of materialism is a relationship with God. Uh, we began our study today of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, but I want to backtrack a few verses now. The, the passage on materialism actually begins back at verse 6. Verse 6 is a one-liner. Let me read it to you. Paul says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. The first big word out of Paul's mouth in this passage that combats materialism is godliness. 
Godliness. One Bible scholar defines godliness this way. He says, godliness is a faith relationship with God that leads to a new way of life. It's a faith relationship with God. Godliness is a life that revolves around God. It's centered on God. You've probably heard it said before, there is a God-sized hole in every one of our lives and only God is big enough to fill it. There's a a God-sized hole. Materialism tries to fill that hole with things and experiences, but things and experiences can't fill the hole, which is why we always want more and more and more. You know, one of the two books that I'm going to be recommending today, and by the way, last week I recommended three books as we launched the series, and those three books weren't, uh, hadn't arrived yet at Resource, unfortunately. They're there now, uh, as well as the two books that you'll hear me mention today. So I encourage you to do some outside reading. The topics that we're covering in this series are of critical importance. So one of the two books I'm recommending today is a book called Satisfied. That's the title, Satisfied, subtitle, Discovering Contentment in a World of Consumption. You know, the the book was recommended to me by a pastor out in Colorado, pastor of a large church in Denver, and he said he's got everybody in his church reading the book, and uh, there are small groups across the congregation, they're all studying this, this, this book, Satisfied, written by a guy named Jeff Mannion. In the book, Jeff describes a a fictitious young woman named Mindy who one day is peering into her walk-in closet. And every hanger is filled. All the shelves are packed tight with clothes. And yet Mindy stands there muttering to herself, I've got nothing to wear. You knew where this was going, didn't you? I've got nothing to wear. Mannion continues, listen, he says, realizing the irony Minnie considers that every item in this closet was liked at one point, at least when it was purchased. I mean, it was liked enough to try it on in a fitting room, carry it to the checkout counter, and exchange money for it. It strikes her as mildly humorous that she loves everything she buys, but little that she owns. In a more contemplative moment, Minnie muses, why do I shop when I'm lonely or bored or depressed? Mindy has yet to ask the big question. Now listen, what if the empty space I'm attempting to fill isn't my closet? That's a great question. What if the empty space we're trying to fill, friends, is not our closet? What if the empty space we're trying to fill is not our garage? What if it's not our social calendar? What if the empty, listen, what if the empty space we're trying to fill is our heart? There is a God-sized hole in our heart, and only God is big enough to fill it. So when we neglect our relationship with God, that hole screams to be filled, which is why we're constantly throwing things into it, everything we can. You know, lattes at Starbucks, a Bulls game at the United Center, a, a new cool movie at the theater, a new outfit at Banana Republic or J. Jill or wherever you shop, a skiing at Snowmass. I mean, it's the constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy when all that will ultimately satisfy us is a relationship with God. And please understand, when I say a relationship with God, I'm not merely talking about that initial step you got to take to get into a relationship with God. You got to surrender to Christ. 
If you've never consciously, deliberately done that, never surrendered to Christ, you know about God, you don't yet know God in a personal, intimate way. You don't. However, having said that, once you make that surrender decision, that's not all there is to the relationship. I mean, like any other relationship in our lives, if you want it to grow, it requires time together. It requires focused attention. And that's the rub. The constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy crowd out God time. Crowd out God focus. You know, we're hardly even aware that this is going on. And that flat screen TV I install in my kitchen now keeps me from reading my Bible in the morning. Or, or my kids' involvement with traveling sports means I can't sign up for an area of serving God because I'm not sure when I'm going to be in town or not. My, my new set of golf clubs or sailboat means don't expect to see me at worship gatherings during summer months. The yoga classes I signed up for makes it impossible to get in a community group. See, on and on it goes. The constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy makes it difficult for us to hotly pursue God. Hotly pursue God. If we want to keep materialism from dominating our lives, we've got to be determined about cultivating a rich relationship with God. And that's not the only relationship we need to cultivate. You know, putting an emphasis on relationships in general, relationships with other people, also helps us to resist the lure of materialism. You know, don't forget materialism is about things and experiences. Relationships are about people. So materialism and relationships, friends, they're always duking it out in our lives. They're always vying for first place, trying to get our attention. Material, materialism results in antisocial, anti-relational behaviors. You know, the Apostle Paul recognizes this in the passage we're looking at today. Drop down to verse 17. Just a, a word about today's passage. You know, it, it covers verses 6 through 10. Then in verse 11, Paul changes uh, subjects for, for, for a few verses and then returns to the topic of materialism in verse 17. So we're skipping around a bit. Verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be, say with me, arrogant. Arrogant. There is something about materialism. There is something about the constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy that, that makes us arrogant, that makes us self-centered. You know, behaviors that are hard on relationships. I, I read a study this past week uh, done out at the University of California in Berkeley. The psychology department decided to study the impact of a person's wealth on their relational behavior. And so they ran several small experiments. One of them was they sent a team of researchers out to a four-way stop sign. Okay, they parked at this four-way stop sign and just took notes. And what they noted was that people who drive expensive cars were four times more likely to be rude, to cut in front of other people and you know, pay no attention to the rules of the game. Four times more likely than those driving inexpensive cars. Made me glad that I'm driving Ford Escape. Yes. 
though I could still be pretty rude at a four-way stop. Another little experiment they did is they invited people in for interviews, and as they came into the room, there was a, a candy jar outside in the hallway and a big sign on, on it that said, for children only, please. And what they noted was that wealthier the person coming for the interview, the more likely they were to steal candy from the kid's jar. One last little experiment. They, they did this game, and they said there's going to be cash prizes at the end of the game. And the wealthier the person, the more likely they were to cheat in order to win the game. So antisocial, anti-relational behaviors. In another study, a neuroscientist at UCLA discovered that wealth dulls the nerves in the brain that are associated with empathy. With empathy. So wealth, money, is hard on relationships. Now, now some of you may be objecting. You may be saying, well, you know, but spending money can actually enhance relationships. You know, you could take your your buddies fishing on your new bass boat. Uh, You could go shopping with your girlfriends. You could spend hundreds of dollars for one of your kids to be in a traveling sports league and then spend all that time in the car together. Quality time, right? Right? You like to try out new restaurants with your foodie friends. Maybe this works sometimes. You know, maybe spending money can be used to build relationships. But I'll tell you what Jen Hatmaker discovered. She's the author of a best-selling book called Seven, and that's the other book I want to promote today. It's just the, the number seven. The book has a subtitle, An Experimental Mutiny Against Excess. Okay, she, she is probably one of the funniest writers I've ever read. I was reading passages of this book. Some of you have read it because it's been a bestseller. I was reading passages out loud to Sue, and we were laughing until we cried about, about some of them. And it's a, it's a book, by the way, that's really well grounded in Scripture, and it's another book. If you're a community group leader, uh, either of the two books I recommended today... Uh, would be great studies for your, your small group. So, uh, so consider it. And in the book, each chapter, seven chapters, she talks about a different area of her life in which for one month at a time, she practiced cutting back. So one of those areas is the area of spending. And because she was going to cut back on spending, she decided she needed to do less eating out. And then it dawned on her, she connects with friends eating out. She connects with friends having a cup of coffee. She connects with, with, with friends as couples doing a date night at a restaurant and, and so on. And so she was worried that her social life would suffer. So she intentionally invited people to her house. And what she discovered was that hospitality builds relationships. Listen to what she writes. She says, cooking and sharing food together is delightful. Eating a meal in a restaurant is one thing, but friends patting around barefoot in your kitchen and chopping carrots for your soup and sipping their coffee on your deck is another creature altogether. This exits the expedience of consumerism Okay, it's, it's easy to just go out and pay money at a restaurant, and it enters the realm of hospitality. There's something so nourishing about sharing your living space with people where they see your junk mail pile and peewee football schedule on the fridge and piles of shoes by the front door. Opening your home says, you're welcome into my real life. 
The square footage is where we laugh and hold family meetings and make homemade corn dogs and work through meltdowns. Here's the railing our kids pulled out of the wall. This is the toilet paper we prefer. These are the pictures we frame, the books we're reading, the projects we're undertaking, the raw material of our family. I like that. B building relationships without spending money. So I offer you relationships. A relationship with God, relationships with others is the first antidote to materialism. Here's the second antidote. Write it down. Contentment. Contentment. Go back to the opening verse of today's passage, verse 6. As I read this, I want you to note the word contentment and content, which is the theme of verses 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. We will be content. Now the truth of the matter is, it's not so easy to be content. And maybe as I read that, Paul says, if we got food and clothing, we're content. You're thinking, not me. It's not so easy to be content, which is why in another of his New Testament epistles, Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, I had to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation. See, contentment is something you've got to learn. It's not a personality trait. Some people are just more contented than others. No, this is a behavior to be learned. How do you learn it? Well, you practice a couple of activities. Let me give you the flip sides, two activities. First is you stop com comparing. There's a stop and a start. The stop is you stop comparing. You know, the minute we compare our stuff, our experiences with others, we want more. Let's say that you just bought your first house, your, your starter house. Let's say it was a fixer-upper, okay? So for the past months, you have been throwing yourself into this home. You've been tearing up old carpeting. Uh, you've been replacing bathroom fixtures and kitchen cabinets. You've been painting. You've been wallpapering. And it's finally done. And you look at your home and you love it. You just love it. Until, until a friend invites you over to dinner. You've never been to his house before. But this is a friend who's same stage of life as you are. Well, whatever that is, your 20s, your 30s, whatever, they're at the same stage of life, single or married, kids or not, where, where you are. And when you pull into his drive, the first thing you notice is he's living in a brand new house, picture perfect. And, and it's like twice the square footage of your house. And he walks you through the house showing you every room out, out to the back deck. And you, you look over this expansive yard that goes on and on and on. And now at the end of the night, you drive home to the house you love. And you pull into the driveway. And it doesn't look so great. Where did the contentment go? Stop comparing. Stop comparing stuff. Stop comparing experiences. But you were so contented with your camping trip in Wisconsin until your coworker brought in pictures of her Caribbean cruise. Where did the contentment go? Stop comparing. By the way, when it comes to comparing, have you ever noticed that we always compare up with people who have more and see ourselves as disadvantaged? Why, why don't we ever compare down with people who have less and say, whoa, do I have a lot? 
Stop comparing. Now, the flip side of stop comparing the second activity that builds contentment is start thanking. Start thanking. My my wife loves to repeat a line. She said it so often, it's become a mantra for her and other family members are now beginning to pick it up. She loves to say, you know, who gets all this? Meaning, wow, have, have I been blessed? And she'll say it, you know, if we're at the zoo with our grandkids, who gets all this? This is great. Or when we open the rice maker that our kids gave us for Christmas this year, you know, who gets all this? We're so much more contented. We, we enjoy our things and our experiences so much more when we're constantly giving God thanks for them, when we're constantly recognizing how blessed we are, how rich we are, how rich we are. What are we? We're rich. We're rich. Go back to verse 17. And Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put, put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Paul has to say it three times here to get our attention. He uses the word rich, wealth, richly, to underscore the fact that you are rich. Now again, I know what some of us are thinking. You're thinking, well, I'm not rich. Not like, not like rich, rich. I'm middle class. Okay, I'm a wee bit upper middle class, but I'm, I'm not rich. Really. Do you make $35,000 or more a year, your household? You're in the top 4% of people in the world. You make $50,000 or more, which is about half the average household income in the areas where we have four campuses. 50, 000, you're in the top 1%. Was it cold in your house this morning? If it was cold, what did you do? You walked over to the wall and you cranked the thermostat up a couple degrees, right? You didn't go out and chop down a tree, haul in the wood, and feed your your fireplace. You didn't shovel coal into the furnace. You went, dink, to the thermostat. If it was dark in your house, what did you do? You flipped on a light switch and lights appeared. If you wanted water, hot or cold, you turned on the tap. You didn't grab a bucket, go down to the river three miles away, chop through the ice and haul back, uh, you know, a couple gallons of water. So we are rich. Jeff Mannion in that book I recommended Satisfied, he has something to say about that. He says, the tragedy is not that we who occupy the middle class are rich when compared to the larger world, but that we're rich and utterly unaware. The scandal is not how much we have, but how little we think we have, and thus how much more we expect and demand. Our souls are in danger, in danger of the felony of ingratitude. The felony of ingratitude. God's plan A, God's antidote for materialism is is contentment. How do we get contentment? We stop comparing, we start thanking. Number three, antidote number three, boundaries. Okay, back to 1 Timothy 6. Again, we're skipping around. We're reading and rereading some of the same verses. So we're going to go back to verses 9 and 10. And this time as I read 9 and 10, I want you to note two verbs. Two verbs. I'll point them out as we get to them. Verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall 
That's one of the two, two verbs I want you to note. Fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered. That's the second verb I want you to note. Have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, Paul is warning us in these two verses about the bad things that can happen to us if we follow the path of materialism. You know, if we engage in the constant hot pursuit of things and experiences that money can buy. He says, watch out. You know, danger ahead. But now I want you to note the verbs I asked you to underline or circle. The, the verbs fall and wandered. Fall and wander. Here, here's the point I want to make. Friends, we don't plan to get into trouble financially. It happens. It happens unintentionally. We fall into it. We wander into it. Let's talk about the problem of debt, for example. Debt is a huge problem in our country. Debt is a huge problem to many of you who are listening to my voice at one of our four campuses today. So how'd you get into debt? I guarantee it wasn't part of your plan, was it? Now, years and years ago, if people spent too much, they eventually ran out of money. They had to stop. No more cash, no more spending. It was a, uh, a difficult lesson to learn, but we learned it. But today, we no longer operate on the basis of cash. We now operate on the basis of credit. So we could spend and spend and spend and spend. You have any idea how many credit cards are in circulation today in our country? You know, I'll tell you where I got the answer to this. Uh, we were playing wits and wagers as a family over the holidays. Ever play that game? And so one of the questions was, how many credit cards are in circulation in our country? And so eight of us, eight adults playing, we all had our guests. None of us got even close. 1.4 billion credit cards in circulation today. It averages out to be about nine credit cards per person carrying a credit card. And do you know, I did a little reading on this. I mean, it's so unbelievable. 1.4 billion credit cards. I discovered that the number one target of the credit card companies are teenagers. That's a scary thought. Okay. You know, just several years ago, I came across a story in the news I couldn't, couldn't believe. Mattel had just come out with a new Barbie, the cool shopping Barbie, she was called. She comes with her own credit card, and when, when she scans her card, it says, credit approved. <laughs> How cute. I'll tell you what's not cute. Here in our country, we have $3.79 trillion of consumer debt, and that doesn't even include household mortgages. $3.79 trillion of credit card debt, uh, you know, car payments, uh, student loans, furniture purchases uh, on time, and so on. $3.79 trillion. It averages out, listen to this, it averages out to 110% of our disposable income. 
110% of our disposable income. We get into financial trouble very unintentionally. We fall into it. We wander into it. But if we're ever going to get out of this trouble, hear me, if we're ever going to get out of it, it's not going to be unintentionally. It's going to require a very intentional plan. You may wander into it, but friend, you're not going to wander out of it. It's going to require putting boundaries in place. Spending boundaries. Boundaries that will enable us to pay off our debts, keep up with our bills. Boundaries that will allow us to give generously to God's work and to save for future expenses. Now, there... there, There's not enough time in this sermon for me to tell you how to do that, how to put boundaries in place. And besides that, that's not my area of expertise. But I'll tell you whose expertise it is. Dave Ramsey. And you've probably heard of Dave Ramsey. Nationally known, got radio shows across the country, an expert in money management, happens to be a Christ follower. So, So many of the things he teaches are based on biblical principles, which is why we teach his course here at Christ Community Church. Nine weeks. It's called Financial Peace University, FPU. The next time it's being offered is in the next week or two is when it begins at our four campuses. So those of you in, in, in Bartlett and Blackberry Creek and DeKalb and St. Charles, please note when it begins. I think it's being offered in St. Charles on two different days of the week. Take your pick. You know, one of the things I love about this course, it's so well known out there that one of the last times we offered it at Christ Community Church, a large percentage of people came from outside our church, just came from the community which underscores the point I'm making in this series that God's plan A is good. And when people discover it for their lives, they say, yeah, that's what I need. One other thing I want to say about FPU and about putting financial boundaries in place. You don't have to be in big trouble to need to do this. You know, there are people who are listening to me right now. You make enough money, you don't have to worry about debt. I mean, you could spend and spend and spend, and it doesn't matter because you got enough money to cover it. And maybe you've been thinking, well, as long as I'm not in debt, whatever I spend, that's cool. But it's not cool, Fred. It wrecks your soul. To spend and spend and spend with no boundaries wrecks your soul. And Jen Hatmaker, I love her honesty in her book seven on this score. She says, about three times a year, I rant around the house screaming at our stuff. What is all this? How did this get here? Why do we have so much junk? Where did all this come from? And then I remember, I bought it all. I suppose acting like someone snuck into my house while I was out feeding the homeless and filled my shelves with more black shirts and a fourth set of Legos against my will is probably ignoble. To hear me fuss, you'd think I was a victim of drive-by consumerism. Guess what? I'm part of this little game. Guess what? We're all part of this little game. And so so we could all use boundaries. Antidote number four. Generosity. Okay, go back to 1 Timothy. By the way, as we go through these, you might want to put a star next to the antidote you think you need most. Okay, just so you're sure to walk away with an application today. I want you to read verse 18 out loud with me. Okay, 1 Timothy 6, verse 18. Let's read it. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, 
and to be generous and willing to share. So antidote number four to materialism is generosity. And Paul describes two kinds of generosity in this verse. Okay, the first kind is serving. It's generosity with our time and our our, our energy. He says, be rich in what? In good deeds. Be rich in good deeds. And, And the second kind of generosity is giving. That's generosity with our money, with our stuff. He says, be be generous and willing to share. So let me say a word about serving and a word about giving, starting with serving. A couple of years ago, just before Christmas, our church helped pack a million meals for hungry kids around the world. Now, you may have been part of that project. We teamed with Feed My Starving Children. And uh, for two straight weekends, multiple days each, each weekend, we had one two-hour shift after another. And we were packing these little plastic bags of food. I can't even remember all that we put in it. It was beans and rice and chicken-flavored something and vitamins and, and, and so on. I, re- I recruited almost 20 people from my neighborhood, 20 neighbors, to join me for my two-hour shift. And I'll never forget, as I was driving up the road to Christ Community Church that day, that Saturday morning, shortly before Christmas, I was thinking to myself, I sure hope they don't hate me for talking them into this. You know, because as I passed like the Geneva Commons and people were out shopping, I thought, that is what America is doing today. They're out spending money. They're out spending money on friends and relatives and on themselves. And I've collected my neighbors together and made them serve. And no doubt some of them were thinking, what the heck did, did I sign up for when they got here? But none of them were thinking that at the end of the two-hour shift. And the way I know is that, is that almost to a person, they came to me and said, thank you so much for including us in this. It is it, so satisfying to do something like this at Christmas time. Let me tell you something. Serving trumps materialism in terms of personal satisfaction. Serving trumps materialism. If you're a mom or a dad, do your kids a favor by teaching them this value. That serving trumps materialism. Before you spend another dime on your kids, get them to serve with you. You know, in your neighborhood, pick out somebody who just they're a bit destitute, they could use some help and go and serve with one of your kids. If you've never signed up for a second Saturday, the second Saturday of every month, put down February's second Saturday on your calendar now. Determine that you and one, two, three of your kids, seven of your kids, however many you got, you're going to show up for two hours of serving the poor in our community with your children. If you're not serving in some area of ministry in our church, do it with your kids. Sign up to be an usher or greeter or work in our kids' world or wherever. Serving trumps materialism. Serve generously and then give generously. You know, most of you know that uh, when you give, when you bring your tithe, that first 10% of your income, and you put it in the offering bag at Christ Community Church on a weekly basis... You are not only giving to meet the needs, spiritual needs, often emotional needs, even physical needs of the 5,000 plus people who call Christ Community Church their home, but but you're also giving to people in our community and around the world. 10% of what we take in goes automatically out the door 
to our community impact partners or our international impact partners. So give on a regular basis in 2016 to that offering, but don't stop there. You know, the needs don't stop there. Beyond your tithe, consider the fact that 19,000 children will die today from something that's preventable. 19,000 children will die today from something that's preventable. So give to Samaritan's Purse. You know, give to Compassion International. Sponsor a child or two on a monthly basis. By the way, Ren Collective, the band that's coming to do a concert here in March... Uh, they are uh, they're, they're pitchmen for, uh, for Compassion International. So Compassion will be set up in, in our lobby and you'll have an opportunity to sign up and support a child on a monthly basis if you'd like to do that. Hundreds of people at our church are already doing that. But don't even stop there. In addition to your tithe and writing that uh, check to meet needs through other Christian organizations, give on a spontaneous basis as God prompts you to do so. You know, one of the moms in our church wrote me an email just recently. She said she was at the grocery store with her kids. She said, I got a bunch of kids. So when I pulled up to the cashier, I mean, my cart was overflowing with food. And I looked behind me in line, and there was a lady holding just a milk carton, one milk carton. So I turned to the cashier and said, I'll cover that. Told the lady, I'll pay for your milk. She said, now, I got to admit, in the back of my mind, I was hoping this would turn into one of those opportunities to talk about Jesus and just say, God bless you in Jesus' name. But before I could say anything, the woman I bought the milk for looked at the cashier and said, isn't there some wonderful karma in this grocery store? And then she walked out with her milk. And this mom said, you know, that's okay. I may never see her again, but I'm going to see that cashier week in, week out, possibly have other opportunities to talk about Jesus. It's just a great opportunity to be generous. C.S. Lewis, author of the famous Chronicles of Narnia, he writes that the best rule for giving, listen to this, the best rule for giving is to give more than we can spare. To give more than we can spare. He continues, he says, if our charities, meaning our giving, if our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do but cannot do because our charity's expenditure, our giving, excludes them. You hear what he's saying? How often do we ever say, well, you know, I can't buy that car or I can't buy that ski package or pair of jeans or restaurant meal or laptop or whatever because I'm giving that amount of money away. Just a quick footnote to this point about giving generously. And then I'm going to wrap things up. Don't strictly think of giving in terms of money. Think of giving in terms of stuff as well. You know, back, back to Jeff Mannion's book, Satisfied. He writes, you have something in your life that's of value to someone, yet it goes unused by you. To whom could this item be given? The bread maker or a set of crystal that collects dust in your kitchen. The bike rack or tent that does nothing but occupy space in your garage or basement. Ouch, I got a tent in my basement I don't use. Who might be delighted to possess something that goes unused in your household? Find its rightful owner, give it away this week. Here's an application for some of us. Give it away this week. You know, I love Jen Hatmaker in her uh, book seven when she's talking about getting 
rid of waste in her life. She determines that during that month, she's going to give away seven items a day. So over 200 over the course of the, the month. And she starts with her clothes. She walks into her clothes closet and she counts. She counts 40 outfits that she's worn five times or less. And four of those outfits still have a price tag on them. And, and in her inimitable humor, she says, yeah, the money I spent on those, I might as well have sautéed with olive oil and eaten. <laughs> Instead, she decides she's going to give it away, just give the clothes away. Maybe that's our application. We all go home to our clothes closets and we, we give it to Wayside Cross. We give it to Salvation Army, whatever. Now, there's one more antidote to materialism in today's 1 Timothy 6 passage. I'm just going to mention it in, in closing. And as I do, I'm going to ask our worship teams uh, to come out. They're going to sing a song while we collect our offering. A song that goes with today's message. And, and so as they sing, I want you to just think through the antidotes that we've touched upon and ask yourself, okay, God, where do I start? What do you want me to apply from what I've heard from your word today? So here's the fifth antidote. It's perspective. Look at verse 19. I'm, I'm talking about eternal perspective. Verse 19 describes this eternal perspective, and this is what keeps us battling materialism in our lives, friends, this perspective is what will motivate us to utilize the other antidotes I've mentioned. Relationships with God and others. Contentment. Stop comparing and start thanking. Boundaries. Set boundaries with the help of Mr. Ramsey. Generosity. Serve and give. What motivates us to do that? Eternal perspective. If, if you don't get eternal perspective, you won't apply anything you've heard. So let, let me read verse 19 to you. Paul says, In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Yeah, it sounds like something Jesus said. Jesus said, you want to spend your money here? Okay, when your life is done, boom, it's all gone. For all eternity, you don't have it. But you lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, and you got it for all eternity. Some of us mistakenly think that every, everyone lives on even par in heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. It says if you want treasure in heaven, you better start laying it up now. That's the eternal perspective that prompts us to do something about materialism, to grab hold. I love the closing line of the verse I just read to you. It's, it's a line I repeat to myself often. God, help me grab hold of life that is truly life. See, the good life that the world offers, money can buy, it says. No, that's not life. I want to grab hold of the life that's truly life.